0: Brought to you by Penguin.
1: I remember the feeling of finishing the book and having this overwhelming conviction that I was going to be a novelist. I needed to be a novelist, that I I had to write a book and I had to pursue this.
2: Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Naika. Here, we chat to authors about what inspires them. Our guest chooses a handful of objects that have sparked their creativity, and then we explore why. My guest today is making huge waves on both sides of the Atlantic with her debut novel, immediately landing on the Sunday Times bestseller list and hitting the number four spot for New York Times hardback fiction. The Push, published in January 2021, is a clever concept novel that gives an inventive twist on the suspense thriller form, and she has been praised for being fearless in her approach to the subject matter, which is an exploration of the dark corners of motherhood. I'm delighted to be joined by the brilliant Ashley Audrain. Ashley, how are you?
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um I'm I'm doing great all things considered. <laughs> In this pandemic world.
2: <laughs> that's the caveat to the answer to any question, which is trying to search out how you are. It's always attached. Um, I'm intrigued how it feels now, a few months after the book is released. And of course, all of the hype around it has translated into people actually wanting to part with money to buy it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the ultimate accolade, right? <laughs> that someone will part with their hard-earned money to get that's it. Right. How does that that's feel? Right.
1: Oh my gosh. Um, you know, it really feels kind of magical <laughs> that it's that this book is out in the world and as you said, you know, people um are choosing to read it and I think also the way they are responding to it.
2: How important is it for you to hear other women say I thought I was the only one that felt this way?
1: Hmm. It's hugely meaningful. It's not why I had set out to write the book. It's not something that I really had expected at any point in this journey, you know, to be totally honest, and I don't know if that's because I, I I don't know why that is. I think I was just so in my own head, you know, for so long with this book. And I think that has been the biggest surprise of having this book published is that I am hearing that from women and how meaningful it is. And that has become very important to me.
2: Because of course, society dictates that you find a partner, you mm-hmm. fall in love, you have babies, as soon as the babies come along, this is the greatest moment of your life that brings nothing but joy. Mostly people who've probably never had kids would say something like that. But it isn't always the case, is it? And you just write that brilliantly, Ashley.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, it, it is not the case. and I And I almost don't know. I mean, the truth is, you know, I don't really know any mother, you know, who would say that it feels like that all the time or even sometimes the majority of the time. Of course, we find that sense of joy and wonder in our children. And, you know, we, we have those moments that feel, you know, better, I think, than we ever expected motherhood to feel, but they, they do sometimes feel, you know, far and few in between. They are not, it is not really what it feels like all the time. And I think that, you know, even when we speak about the hard parts of motherhood, you know, the the parts that we feel a bit hesitant to say we always feel like we need to then disclaim the honesty with those kinds of moments. You know, we feel like, you know, when we do share how hard it is or the tough moments, we then need to say, oh, but you know, I I love them so much and it feels so worth it. And, you know, I write about some of this in the book, but, you know, I catch myself doing it all the time as well. You know, I love my children dearly, but, and I think what this, book sort of feels like is that the butt is, is taken away. You know, there is that, is that it, it is just that raw, honest, dark truth of what it can really feel like sometimes. And I think, you know, something that I've talked to women a lot about since reading the book is that, um, you know, many things can exist at once. You know, you can feel love for your children And, you know, certainly not regret ever becoming a mother, but you can still loathe the experience of motherhood on any given day. Motherhood is a huge conflicting emotion. (laughs) You know, it really is. Um, And I think, yeah, I I hope that this book has made space for women to feel like they can say that, you know, without feeling the need for that disclaimer or, or feeling like they can say it without the judgment and the shame that we so often attach to that.
2: And what kind of reactions have you had from fathers Mm. who've read the book?
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't sure how men would perceive the book or how fathers would feel about the book. I am always so interested, you know, to hear from men and from fathers about what parts of the book resonate for them, you know, and how they feel about Blight's experience and about Fox's experience, who is, you know, the husband, the father in the book. And I would say, you know, overwhelmingly what I have heard from fathers is that um, it is an eye-opening book. I have heard from men whose partners are expecting or whose partners have just had a baby. You know, they are new fathers who have said to me that they will now have a very different conversation, you know, with their partner than they would have before they've read the book. Um, That they would ask different questions, make space for different experiences and and that, that that is very meaningful, certainly. that If that is the outcome of this book, then that is you know, more than I could ever ask for, I think, for this book. But um, yeah, that, I think that's an interesting thing to hear. Have
2: there been different sets of feedback based on generations?
1: Mm. Some of the most, um, I would say, personal messages that I've received um, have been from women who are not in my generation. They are women who are now in their you know, fifties and sixties, my mom's generation, really, where women felt very liberated in some ways, I think, and not at all in others. And I think motherhood is one of those places where, you know, they did not feel that. I, I think in that generation, there's very much this idea that you suck it up and you get on with it, you know, and yes, it is all, it is very hard and yes, it is not perfect, but your job is just to, you know, smile and get through it. Yeah, I think it can be, very powerful for them to think of their own experience, you know, now, like to think of what that would be like now, or, um, you know, their experience in comparison to Blythe's. I think there was a lot that went unsaid for women of that generation. Whereas I think now, you know, we've come far in a lot of ways. I think we're having much better conversations about mental health now than we were then, of course. You know, there's a lot more room for women to share that they are, you know, having an experience like postpartum depression or, you know, struggling in that way. We've made more space for that now, for sure.
2: You are a a literary geek, and I mean that in a good way. (laughs) You're obviously obsessed with books and obsessed with the form of writing. Mm -hmm. What power do you think fiction has to change the narrative? Because it feels as though society collectively gaslights women Mm-hmm. About their fears and their pain, the violence that's inflicted upon them. Does fiction play a part in in changing that narrative?
1: I would really like to believe it does. I mean, this has been said before, but I, I really believe it that you know you can tell truth in fiction in a way that you can't always in nonfiction. It is almost I think you know easier to get at the heart of the truth and to get very honest um, and to get very real and very raw in fiction it is a form that um lends itself to going to very deep and dark places and a writer can remove themselves a bit from that you know in a way, or a lot in some cases from that of course in a way that's something you know a personal essay or autofiction cannot um I think there is power there. And I think, you know, in the case of women and, you know, women telling stories about, you know, other women or the the female experience, um, you know, there are so few other spaces that we are invited to do this, you know, and I think this a lot about the idea of domestic noir or the idea of these, you know, thrilling stories that we read about, um, you know, like the psychological thriller with female characters, a lot of them with, you know, wives and mothers um, as the central figure in the novel. And I think that the reason that we see that, you know, and the reason that they do, these books do so well, people buy them and, you know, eat them up is because it is one of the only spaces where we're invited to really go dark and to explore, you know, the fears that so many women have, you know, in that experience of motherhood. That has always really appealed to me as a reader um, and certainly appeals to me as a writer.
2: Let's go to your first object, um, which is a song. Mm. The Mother by Brandy Carlisle. Tell us about how this inspired the writing of your first novel.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's a song that Brandy wrote after having her first daughter. It has such a brilliant opening line. And the opening line of that song is, welcome to the end of being alone inside your mind. And randy Carlyle has said of this um so i'll quote her here you know to some this sounds like the realization of their most sacred dreams you know true companionship but for some the sacrifice is too much to bear and requires its own brand of radical forgiveness for the most part and for me it's equal measures of both i am not just a mother but it's all that i am and i just i love the way that this song and that explanation and that line of the song sort of works through that idea. Um, You know, she, in the song, she writes through the things that motherhood take from her and how much she resents that. But there's a very, you know, there's such tenderness to this as well, tenderness to the song and the lyrics that she writes and I love my daughter. You know, she's only three, but she's always loved this song. And she makes me, you know, dance around the kitchen with her when we play it. And she changed, she makes me change the daughter's name in the song, which is Evangeline, to her her name, which is Waverly. Um, I, you know, I turn to this song sometimes when I just need to get in the mood to write, you know, whether, it's, whether it was The Push, whether it's my next book. I, sometimes I just like to play it to get in a certain mood.
2: How difficult was it for you to write this book? Is it Mm-hmm. going into the darkest deepest recesses of your soul or is it pent up emotions that you were allowed to express or you allowed yourself finally to express so it just poured out
1: you know I didn't find it difficult to write about what I'm writing about in the push I really didn't and I I think it was just the way that I was seeing things you know it was just what I I felt like I was just writing the truth in a lot of ways. And even though, you know, Blythe's story goes to much darker places than I've ever experienced, thankfully, and hopefully never will, even I think putting myself in the shoes of her when she's going through those experiences, you know, was not as difficult as I think some people would expect it to be or some people have assumed. And I think it's because... For me, it was exploring fear. Like a lot of this book was really writing through fear, through my greatest fears, through most of our greatest fears as parents. And there is something, I think for me, a little cathartic, you know, about exploring that on the page. You are in control of that scene. You are in control of the emotions. You are in control of the next sentence you write. I am not a psychologist, but I'm sure a psychologist would have something to say about that experience. But, you know, I find some of the the harder, you know, the darker parts of this book but you know, harder to read, I think, than they were to ever write.
2: Oh, that's okay. That's interesting. So, how do you maintain emotional distance while pouring emotion into a book, mm. or is that possible to do?
1: I am able to sort of compartmentalize that from the emotions that I really feel in my day to day life. Somehow, and I'm sort of experiencing that a bit with writing my second book now. I think a lot of it is just trying to have empathy for what that would be like. And I, just, I don't know, I, I am able to walk away from my laptop and leave it there. I mean, it's, you know, one thing is that, um, and I don't know if this would make a difference. I would be curious to hear what writer what writers would say about this, but I really don't like to be at home when I'm writing. And maybe that is a response to exactly what we're talking about. I really like to be out of my house. I like to be at a coffee shop or at a, you know, library or right now that obviously is very difficult to do. But, the, you know, the whole time I wrote The Push, um, you know, I would physically, you know, leave my children here and go and write. And, and then I would be able to, ju- it's almost like it just didn't exist here as a part of my life with my family, like that, that writer, that writing life and those, those, that emotion and those ideas. Um, And I I do struggle a lot more to sort of get into it when I'm at home.
2: Now that you've discovered that you can do it and you can do it very well, is it something that you have to do?
1: Yeah, I really feel like I need to do this. I mean, I really feel like it is who I am. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because for me, my writing self, you know, this writing life that I now have, was born at the same time as my son was, you know, as my, as I was as a mother. I mean, I, that those two things for me will always be very hard to separate. Um, you know, I had always did writing through my life. I always did, you know, writing courses on the weekend or, you know, was dabbling with fiction here or there, but I, I never considered myself a writer and really pursued it, you know, until he was born, you know, when he was still an infant. And I felt then, I needed to really be in this world, in this life, who I really am. Um, And so I, I, and I feel more like my, you know, despite all of the fears I had about how much being a mother would change me. um, Like I think many parents can relate to, many people can relate to, um, you know, I really do feel more like myself now, my authentic self now, you know, than I ever did.
2: My apologies if this seems so simplistically kind of binary, but Mm. has being a successful author made you see motherhood differently feel differently about it
1: you know I think I am a more patient mother and I think I am able to enjoy motherhood more than I would because I I know about myself that it is you know I, I it is a balance for me you know it really is it is I need both but I but it's I sort of need them both in equal measure in my life you know to be the best at both of those things I think if that makes sense
2: it does, it's fascinating. Um, let's move on to your next object, to a book.
1: So it's a children's book called "I Love You Forever" by an author who is Canadian, Robert Munch. This book is you know wildly popular here since since the day it's been published. It has always been um, you know, a bestseller here. It is a picture book. And it's a story of a mother who sings the same song to her son every single night, you know, and the book carries us all through the different stages of this son's life. And the words of the song are, um, I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as you're living, my baby, you'll be.
2: You know, what? I almost feel like grabbing my wife now because (laughs) we said this to our kids. We read this, oh, book, I can't really? remember because it was like 13 years yeah. ago.
1: Wow! So, so she he she sings it to him through all the different stages, and you know every page is a different age. And then they, we get to the end of the story, and she becomes too old and too sick to sing this to him anymore. And so she calls him at the end of the book and tells him this. And he is, you know, making dinner for his own family at that time. He has, you know, and he drives over to her house at night and comes up to her room and he picks her up and rocks her and he sings the same song to her and you know you you get the feeling as a reader that this is the last time you know this is going to happen and then he goes home to his own baby girl you know and picks her up and and does the same and you know it's an utterly heartbreaking book for a children's book i mean it really is but but the book is so endearing it's such an endearing story and you know it came out when i was 4 or 5 years old but it was a staple in our house and i can remember my parents reading me this and i remember the sadness in them and actually, you know, Robert Munch wrote this after um, having two stillborn babies, you know, and so it, that, this, oh. that song was his way of grieving. And actually, you know, despite being a successful author, then his publisher would not publish the book at first because they thought it was far too dark. And yet it is such a simple book. It is, it is so, there's so much simplicity in how moving it is. Oh, you've brought
2: it back to me. <laughs> yes, as soon as you said those lines, I was suddenly transported back to that place. Superb. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move straight on to object number three. It's a novel. As I said, you're a literary geek. So, of course, I am. Yes. it would be lots of uh, books involved in our conversation today. Mm-hmm. Um, why is The Forgotten Waltz by Anne Enright an object you really wanted listeners to the Penguin podcast to know about?
1: Mm. Well, you know, I have a very, very vivid memory of reading this book, and I—I I, I will say, I actually have a terrible memory for most things, and so the, that this sits with me so strongly, and you know, has always told me something. And I read it; I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was actually on vacation. It was, you know, more than ten years ago. I was in Thailand in a hammock when I read this book, and I remember the feeling of finishing the book and having this overwhelming conviction that I was going to be a novelist. I, I needed to be a novelist, that I I had to write a book and I had to pursue this. And I'm not, you know, I'm not exactly sure about, you know, what about that book spoke to me so strongly besides the fact that Anne Enright is, you know, obviously a very genius writer and, It is a fantastic book, but it's not even, you know, the plot or any, or the characters or the scenes that I can remember. It is the feeling of reading it. And it it is that feeling that you get when you feel a little bit electric, you know, when you feel a little bit buzzing with um, a revelation or an awareness, or I think we've all can relate to that feeling at some point where you just, you feel full, you feel very full and alive and you, and you feel conviction in something. And that is just how I felt after reading this. But, you know, she does write in the book, you know, the book is about, um, you know, an affair and a marriage and, um, you know, with a, from a, a woman who doesn't have children and she has an affair with a man who has a child. And, you know, it, it's about her, it, her, it's about this affair, you know, how it starts and how it ends. And the character, his name is Gina. She is such a, you know, what we would consider a flawed female character. You know, I hate the idea of unlikable characters because I think that's what makes people so interesting. But she, you know, she is that classic, you know, what we would consider to be this unlikable character. She's actually also quite disgusted by the idea of motherhood. And I think that I just, I think there was something about the way Enright chose to portray a woman like that that really spoke to me and that really inspired me. How do you
2: replicate that feeling within your own writing? Is it possible to?
1: Mm, Yeah, I don't know that I can replicate that or... I don't even know that I can feel that way ever again. And I don't know that I could ever capture that in my writing. I, I I think there's a magic to that kind of a feeling. Like it's a bit of a, many different elements having to come together to give you that very specific kind of inspiration and kind of feeling that you might only get, you know, a handful of times in your life. So I don't know that I could ever capture that again or feel that again. Yeah. I don't know.
2: Well, look, there's a brilliant bit in the book where Blythe buys a portrait of a mother and mm. son to hang in her own child's bedroom. Let's take a listen to that now, Ashley.
0: On the way home, I walked by a woman setting up a small flea market stand on the side of the street. She leaned a stack of old paintings against the lamppost as she put coloured dots on the backs to mark the prices. She pulled out one in an elegant gold frame and looked at it thoughtfully, deciding how to price it. I stood behind her and found myself clutching my chest as I took the painting in. It was of a mother sitting with her small child on her lap, the rosy baby dressed in white and cupping his mother's chin gently as she glanced down. One arm was around the child's middle, and the hand of the other held his small thigh. Their heads touched. There was a peacefulness to them, a warmth and comfort. The woman's long, draping dress was a beautiful peach with burgundy florets. I could barely speak to ask her the price. But it didn't matter. I had to have it. I'll take that one, I said as she put it back in the pile. The oil? She took her glasses off and looked up at me. Yes, that one. The mother and the child. It's a replica of a Mary Cassatt. Not an original, of course. She laughed as though I should know how absurd it would be to have an original Mary Cassatt. Is that her in the painting? The artist? She shook her head. She was never a mother herself. Maybe that's why she liked to paint them so much. I carried the painting home under my arm and hung it in the baby's nursery. When you came home that night to find me straightening the frame on the wall, you stopped in the doorway and made a noise. A humph. What, you don't like it? Not your typical nursery art. You hung pictures of baby animals in Violet's room. Well, I love it. I wanted that baby. That cupped face. That chubby hand on mine. That palpable love. That
2: was a reading from The Push, written by Ashley Audrain and read by Marin Island. The audiobook is available to buy now, and there's a link in the program notes of this episode, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Now, let's go to your final object, which is a ceramic mug. (laughs) Can you describe why you chose this? And firstly, congratulations for choosing a non-literary object. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, you know, this mug, this ceramic mug is... It's a beautiful mug made by the writer and potter, Elizabeth McNeil, who is British. Um, And we share an agent, which is how I sort of, you know, have come to know her virtually at least. And it's, it's a mug that has sort of a figure on it of a face, but it also, the way she has done it, you could also see it as like the eyes and the nose almost look like the outline of breasts on a woman. It's a very sort of feminine design and... I just I love it i've I've always loved it. I saw her sort of post about it on social media and it was on her website and you know she she is the best selling writer of the doll Factory, and she has another wonderful book coming out um soon but but she doesn't do much. Pottery, but when she when she does, she puts the pieces on her you know shop online and there are very few. It is very limited and it sells out right away. Um, you know, I had at one point I think posted about it on on one Instagram and another um writer in the UK, Sarah Vaughn, um, whose latest book is called Little Disasters. She also writes wonderfully about you know the darker side of motherhood. And she had messaged me and said, Oh, you know, I have the same one, I've just bought it from her. And she said to me, What a lovely idea that you know we there was a few other writers who'd also had it you know that all of us writers you know are sitting at our computers working away on our books all drinking tea you know from the same beautiful piece that Elizabeth has made and she said I'm going to hang on to that when I write like that that little bit of makes me feel inspired yeah i think especially this year we feel so separated from each other and I've made these wonderful friendships with writers, you know, online, but I have yet to meet any of them face to face. I, you know, I've yet to be, I have yet to leave my kitchen table, you know, since The Push came out really. And so there's just something kind of poignant about that. Um, And I do find inspiration at that, you know, at 5am when I get up to, you know, work on my next book. So. (laughs) Um,
2: I'm just wondering whether authors, not only are they sitting in front of their laptops writing whether they have another laptop constantly pressing refresh to try and buy an elizabeth mcneill piece of pottery i mean i've just gone to the website and every piece is sold out every piece is sold out
1: out. i'll have to give you a little heads up next time
2: (laughs) this is like so i'm into trainer culture Maybe for the literary set, this is your version of trainer culture. I
1: think so. The trainer culture, much cooler than this, but yeah, I'll take it. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it does feel a bit um, like that.
2: We're running out of time, sadly, but mm. do you in any way, shape or form suffer from imposter syndrome? Mm,
1: yes, <laughs> I do. That is a that is a very clear, a very clear yes. Yeah, I do. And I think... I'd like to think that a lot of authors feel that way after their first book comes out. Um, I've actually, speaking of Elizabeth McNeil, I've had this conversation with her, um, you know, this feeling like you will never be able to do it again. You will be the one hit wonder, you know, you will, you will never be able to replicate it. And yeah, I do, I do suffer from that. I think too, because I don't come from a literary background. I mean, I I worked in publishing for a couple of years, you know, before I wrote this book, which was sort of a crash course kind of training in that world. But, you know, I grew up with parents who worked very hard at, you know, one worked in retail and my father was a mortgage broker and there was no, um, I don't know anybody or didn't come from any sort of, you know, creative endeavors or you know any artistic kind of life? I, I haven't read the classics. You know, I didn't grow up with that kind of life, and so you know, there's no MFA, there's no writing degree, and so I think on the lower days where my mind can go is that this is just you know a lot of luck, um, beginner's luck, and and there's kind of nothing left. But uh, I hope that's not the case. But that is the honest answer.
2: Mm. Now, before we go, don't forget to follow the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate and most of all, share. Uh, You've probably worked out, actually, this isn't for you, this sentence. Although I would like (laughs) you to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate and most of all, share it as well, especially in exchange for limited edition pottery. Uh, You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. So uh, thank you for that. Now, finally, we'd like to ask our guests, Ashley, about a book they love. And it's Mm. easier, perhaps, to ask you about the one you've loved most recently because anyone that follows you on Twitter knows that you're constantly I don't know where you get the time to read all these books quite frankly but you are <laughs> tweeting constantly about a new book that you love a new book that you rate
1: oh thank you um yeah I do I I just I love to um yeah to gobble up whatever's coming next um but oh you know a book that I've read you know recently that I just I love and I think about all the time is um she's, she's uh, a British author too, I think actually a Megan Hunter. Um, and she wrote a book called the Harpy. Do you know this book or have you read it?
2: No, I haven't.
1: Yeah, It's so it, it actually, it came out when we were in the thickest days of, um, you know, COVID and the pandemic. So I, I feel like it maybe didn't get the sort of the chance that it should have in a way, but it is just, it is a brilliant book. And it's a story of a woman who discovers that her husband um, is having an affair and he agrees to let her hurt him three ways three different times in revenge but he doesn't know how and he doesn't know when and i think that is just such a brilliant concept <laughs> and so the you know the story is about the three ways that she chooses to hurt him and it is a really deep and beautiful portrait of marriage and motherhood and the domestic life and she um, weaves in an almost kind of fairy tale like obsession that the main character has with the harpy, you know, with a woman's face and a, a woman's head and a, and a bird's body and that mythical creature and what that means to her. And I was just captivated by this book and I could not literally could not put it down. I think I did read it in one sitting or two, maybe. I really think she's just such a talented writer, and uh, yeah, I, I I highly recommend it.
2: The push: TV rights or film rights?
1: TV rights, yeah, TV rights. It is going to be produced um, as a limited television series by um, David Heyman, who's a producer that has done some you know wonderful work, namely the you know, all of the Harry Potter films and um, a Marriage Story, which is a movie I really love, um, and once upon a Time in Hollywood. And so my fingers are crossed that it all happens. <laughs> it would be wonderful to see.
2: Um, how involved with that process would you get?
1: You know, I, I'm i not sure yet. Um, I'm going to be an executive producer on the project, but I mean, we'll, we'll see. I know that can look many different ways, but, you know, I really am excited to get, put this in the hands of a brilliant screenwriter and a brilliant director and really let it become its own new piece of art, you know, in a way. I don't feel very precious about it in that sense.
2: When you close your eyes and think of Blythe and Fox, which actors do you see?
1: Oh, you know, I have had a really hard time deciding who I see, you know, to answer your question, who that would be. You know what I think really excites me is the idea of, you know, two people, two actors that we don't really know yet. I think of a show like Normal People, uh, which I loved. You know, I love that adaptation Um, and... Uh, and that those were, you know, two actors who we hadn't seen much from before. And I think that was really powerful in those roles. So maybe that would be kind of fun.
2: Uh, Ashley, it's been a pleasure talking Aww. to you today.
1: Thank you so much, Nahal. I, I love talking to you the first time um, that we spoke for your radio show. And it's just, it's been really lovely having this conversation. So thank you.
2: Stephen Fry here. I wanted to tell you about the brand-new audiobook edition of one of my novels, Making History. It's a mind-bending, time-travelling comedy that asks what you would do if you had the power to alter history and eradicate a great evil. Of course, tinkering with time is a dangerous game and nothing, past, present or future, will ever be the same again. You can download the audiobook, read by me, from Audible or Apple Books. Now...